Amen. Thank you for that powerful song. Our scripture reading today is from Psalms 86, verses 1 through 7. And I'm reading from the New International Version. Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You are my God, Savior servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, O Lord, listen to my cry for mercy. In the day of my trouble, I will call to you, for you will answer me. Oh, I just love to have that music. Just, we could just go home. <laughs> just so nice to worship together. As we pondered our house plan, Mark and I would spend our days off, usually Sundays, driving around Squim looking for houses and landscaping that would inspire us for what we wanted in our own house. One day we're, we were on the top of Brigadoon, because we wanted a view, and we're looking around and there was a concept that captured my imagination. I saw a see-through house. Have you seen a see-through house? Where you can, from the street, look in the front windows and see all the way through to the back windows. And if it is a see-through house, that means it will catch both the morning and the afternoon sunlight. And since both Mark and I have seasonal affective, that sounded like a really good idea. And Mark, who always wants to please his wife, designed our house with that request in mind. I also wanted a bird feeder, and I put it right across from my kitchen window. I stop there and watch my little bird friends several times a day. It's a beautiful interlude in my busyness. Little did I understand that my bird feeder and my see-through house created a death trap. On sunny days, my poor little bird brain friends see the light coming through those windows and decide to take a shortcut. Wham! They hit the kitchen window and fall stunned to the ground below. And often I will run outside and cradle them in my hands and pray that they will revive their tiny little hearts beating wildly. About half the time my prayers are answered and they open their eyes, they fluff themselves up and fly away. And I'm always so relieved. The other half the time I pray their last rites as their tiny little hearts slow and then stop. 
I always apologize profusely, and I hope they understand that I really didn't mean them any harm. I had a wise counselor 12 years ago who was helping me work through a significant personal trauma. And I expressed how I felt paralyzed, unable to do anything that winter, but sit by, in my chair by the fire and cry. I had a little mountain of soggy Kleenexes on the floor before any of my family even got up in the morning. And then he used a metaphor of a bird that hit the window, fell stunned, but eventually revived and flew away. And he said to me, you are in a stunned stage, but you won't be there forever. You will find your wings again. Every time I encounter one of my little bird friends, dead or alive, I remember how tenderly God held me as I caught my spiritual breath. I am in such a different place than I was that winter. But I also remember what stunned and helpless feels like. And that helps me to find empathy when I encounter one of you that's in that state. Some days, we don't even see trauma coming. The phone rings and we learn there's been an accident and someone we love dearly is right there hanging on for dear life. Or the doctor sits down with us and delivers a bad diagnosis, potentially terminal. Or the stock market tanks, what was it, 28 points? 28% yesterday that we would lose our retirement? Our children make destructive choices and they shut themselves off from our counsel or a friend that we trusted our deepest pain with turns on us. There's all kinds of ways we hit a window. All kinds of ways. We don't know what hits us, or more precisely, what immovable object we just hit. And we lay there stunned, often unable to think or pray, and then eventually we come to and we try to figure out what to do next. We often spend longer in that stunned stage than we think it should take. You cannot hurry grief. And when I give, do my grief recovery groups, there's this little litany that we do every single meeting. How long does it take? As long as it takes and you cannot hurry it. But somewhere in that stunned stage, we finally start praying again. And they are tormented prayers full of anger and often self-recrimination, or maybe not. Sometimes the trauma makes it hard to trust God at all, and we turn away for a season to lick our wounds in solitude where we don't welcome God in to that pain. I recently read a book by Ellen Davis, who is an Old Testament scholar from Duke Divinity School. I quote her on today's service page. 
she includes a chapter on the Psalms of Lament, where the psalmist is encountering profound grief and profound fear and has to express that to God. It, she also includes um, a chapter on the imprecatory psalms. You know what the imprecatory psalms are, even? They're cursing. It's where the psalmist asks God to go after their enemy. And often they're really incredible things that they are praying as they ask God to take care, take care of that enemy. And the interesting things, thing is this lament and this cursing end up maybe just a line or two in the really wonderful psalms that we all love. And usually we just skip those verses. It's like we don't really want to quote them in church. And so you just cut off the scripture just before either the lament or the cursing happens. You'll notice we don't quite know what to do with all of scripture, those parts of scripture, in our polite Christian fellowship. But when Mark and I decided that we were going to read the Psalms on Sabbath afternoon in our Hear the Word time, I thought about the fact that we're going to read all of it. We're not skipping those verses when we do Hear the Word. And I thought you might find it helpful to get a little background information before you hit one that is all cursing or all lament, because you're going to say, how did that get in the Bible? And I want to tell you how it got in the Bible, so it won't you know, catch you off guard when it happens. There are, only, there are two chapters where there is lament and cursing, and it never does resolve to trust and faith. And you go, oh my goodness, what is that doing there? The oppressive tone never resolves. And we don't usually preach from those places, but they're still there. It surprises us that the book of Psalms, which literally in Hebrew means praises, would be so dark. We do not willingly look at human grief, anguish, and confusion. We try to ignore it especially in church, and just hope it will go away. The problem is the human condition is broken, and all of us will hit patches in our life which are excruciatingly difficult. And the Psalms describe what life can really be like. By refusing to acknowledge this, we actually shut ourselves off from God's care and healing at just the moment we need him most when we're in distress. We cannot be in an intimate relationship with someone with whom we cannot be honest. You have to be able to be honest for there to be true love and true friendship. So I must be honest with God, and so must you. And when we're in one of those horrible, excruciating times, 
are honest with God might not quite be polite. Let's just be honest with, it, with ourselves that life sometimes gets way too hard. So as you look at the prayers of Scripture, there are, they're scattered throughout the Bible. And I would like to propose that if you're having a hard time praying, just find a prayer that's already there and pray it. And many of them are in the Psalms. The, the entire book of Psalms is a book of prayer. But also there's the prayers of Paul that you find in his epistles, the prayers of Jesus that you find in the gospel. Daniel had a great prayer. Nehemiah had great prayers. Take those prayers and use them as a skeleton for your own. And you'll pray a lot deeper. And you'll pray some things that maybe you would have never gone there if you hadn't been using the Bible itself. Most of the psalms you will find are not sunny little praises. Many of them are protests. And do we have anything to protest right now? Yeah. I mean, there are so many things going on in the world and in our life, and God doesn't want us to just sit back and say, well, you take care of it. He wants us to engage with him in our prayers with protest when life gets hard, really super hard. Okay, something is wrong, and the person praying will ask God to do something to fix the situation. Okay, anybody of you know of anything wrong that you're praying about? You know? Again, it, there's, there's a whole lot of things wrong that we should be praying about. And we don't always have to be sweet and gentle while we're making these requests. So let's go back and just see why God might be encouraging us to pray these difficult prayers. For a child to grow up and accept and face difficult emotions, they need parents who will validate their feelings. A good mother or a father will go to their child when the child cries. They will pick them up and hug them. They will acknowledge that they have been heard. They'll find a Band-Aid. They'll wipe away the tears and kiss the forehead, right? For a child to cry and the parent to do nothing creates a child with a real problem. And instead, our Heavenly Father, when we cry, gets active to comfort us. Praise Him for that. That's wonderful. And so we need someone to notice our pain. We need someone to care about our pain and seek to understand it. It's that validation that makes pain bearable. Years ago, I had a teacher at Walla Walla, and I had really encountered some very, very difficult, unjust treatment from the church. And I sought comfort from this former teacher who had taught me and loved me and known me before. I was so profoundly disappointed, and as I told him my story, the tears began to flow. 
in my eyes. I had hit the window. And as I told him my story and cried, I looked into his face, and he was crying too. To see his tears validated my tears and the struggle I was facing, the broken dream that I was laying on the altar for God. And I have to say, he did not change anything about my situation. But I do believe I'm in the church today because he cried with me. In contrast, invalidation belittles. What are you crying about? You want me to give you something to cry about? Okay, that's invalidation. We all carry wounds because we've been treated that way by somebody who didn't want to hear our struggle, who didn't want to hear our story, and just basically said, shut up. Our Father never says shut up. All right? And if you have to complain, he'll say, just bring it on. My shoulders are broad. I can handle your complaints. And if you're angry, he can handle that too. That's such good news. We all carry these wounds because our families were imperfect and our school systems and workplaces are even worse. We are surrounded by insensitive humans who often refuse to validate us. So we end up with this black hole in our souls, and when we're distressed, we don't even really know what to do or where to go. Often, we feel that there's no one now that we can truly trust with our deepest pain. We desperately need someone to understand. We need radical acceptance of our needs, fears, and feelings. And where can we go? We can go to our Father. We can go to God because he is really the only one that has unfailing love. And if we're expecting unfailing love from anybody else, any other human on earth, guess what? They're going to fail you somewhere. They're not going to love you quite how you need to be loved. Humans let us down. But God has unfailing love. He will go the distance with us, and he will understand, no matter what it is we're telling him, he loves us unconditionally. So, these prayers that are just a long litany of complaints or cursing of the enemies, what do they tell us about God? The psalms of complaint and cursing do not follow the rules that you're taught when you're taught to pray in Sabbath school. The psalmist seems utterly self-absorbed and self-concerned. The focus is on me, myself, and I. My enemies, my life, my reputation, my salvation, right? And you're saying, hmm, that's really selfish. Well, guess what? When we pray, we often are. Even worse, these prayers are not polite. They accuse God of abandonment, murder, falling asleep on the job, 
and often just tell God, if this is how you're going to treat me, go away. Most offensively, these prayers expressed unchristian attitudes toward their enemies. They pray devotedly for terrible things, like, please dash their little babies' heads against the rock. Have you ever read that and wondered, what is that doing in my Bible? Or some of the Psalms pray, please erase their name from the book of life. That is a wordy way to say something we often do say. Or how about make sure that their children and their grandchildren never have a home and are beggars. That's a terrible curse. These are terribly vindictive prayers. And yet there's something very important that's going on in these prayers. These prayers tell us that God cares about our pain and can be expected to do something about it. This is a remarkable assumption when you think about it. That the God of the universe who created heaven and earth cares when you hurt and cares when you get mad, and really doesn't like it when someone mistreats you. This care is the only thing that explains this very strange style of biblical prayer. It's a style without parallel anywhere in ancient literature. Usually, when the different religions pray to God, they may ask, but they ask politely. But in the Psalms, it is not polite. It is in your face, God, do something for me now. I am, I'm mad at you, God, kind of prayer. And the very fact that they're there, speaking to God in language so strong, so forthright, and so rude. Wake up, God, why are you sleeping? tells us that we can pray when we feel that way. The rest of scripture is God's words to us. Only the Psalms and a few of those prayers are our words to God. But because these imprecatory and lament Psalms are in the Bible, they actually become God's words to us. He says, this is my prayer book. Learn to pray from the book of Psalms. It's okay to talk to me that way. Wow. God is inviting us to pray demanding, angry, rude, vindictive prayers. Hmm. Because all of us are sometimes demanding, angry, vindictive, and rude, right? And what better place when you're feeling that way is to go to God and not take it out on the human being that's closest. When you're feeling that way, you should go to the one who is easiest to talk to. Now, I have a little plaque that you find in my office, which is full of Rocky Road stuff, so it's a mess. But that, um, that little plaque says, Pray always. God is easier to talk to 
than anyone else. And I have found this to be true because when I share my struggles, I often am misunderstood, right? And you don't know who you can trust, and so it's just so much safer and easier to talk to the only one that you know for sure gets you, and that's going to be God. And then you can tell him the absolute truth. The Psalms of Lament regularly trace a movement from complaint to confidence, And many of them do resolve by the time the psalm is over, and they start complaining, and by the time they're done, they're praising God. That's like a two-hour movie that everything is wrapped up and solved by the end. And we love those kind of feel-good movies, right? We don't like the ones where the hero dies and there's no closure. But life is really not that way. You lose someone close to you, it's going to take more than a two-hour movie to fix it, right? You have a, a huge disappointment. It's not just going to get resolved quickly. But the psalms that do move that way can kind of prime the prompt and encourage us to take our eyes off of the me, myself, and I and put it unto God who actually can do something about your problem, who actually will do something about your problem. They, and often, when you see these psalms of lament that have that little pivot point in the middle that go from complaint to praise, there's nothing that actually changed in the personal situation that that person, that psalmist, is facing The only thing that has changed is that psalmist has received validation that God hears and God knows. And that is enough to turn you from complaint to praise if you know God has been there with you in it. Okay, the psalms illustrate that God is the one who validates us. So we can pour out all this junk that we feel And find our way from there to healing because he has listened. The Psalms encourage us to face our negative emotions, know that God is with us through them, and then give them back to God and say, okay, you take care of this now. Done. Not only will he accept all these potent prayers, he encourages them. And often the Psalms don't even record any change in what the enemies are doing, right? Other than taking up headspace in the psalmist's head. Nothing really changes except the psalmist's attitude that he knows he's not alone and he knows he's not rejected, that God is in this with him. Our prayers are not always answered in the terms we expect and long for. But we can cast all of our care upon him, the only one who can understand. So um, the healing comes after we have vented our anger or our sadness. And then we appeal for God to ask. Do you remember how Jesus taught us to treat our enemies? What did he say to do? To be kind to them, 
to pray for them, to bless them, right? Now, when he says to pray for them, he doesn't tell us what to pray. And so when you're still in the angry phase and you're praying for an enemy, you just might be praying that God take care of them in a way that only God can do, right? But even that is good because um, Romans 12, 19 says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And he says, don't you take vengeance. Just tell, tell me, and I'll take vengeance. And so sometimes we do that. But you don't realize that when you ask God to do the vengeance thing, often he takes it and he wants to fix the situation in a kind and gracious and merciful way. And by the time he's taken care of it, it's actually blessed the other person. And so you really have been praying for them. Right? You're giving God the option of what to do. You're just telling God on them. They're telling God what they have done. And you hand them to God and say, okay, go at it. Now, I I maybe shouldn't tell you this story, but when we were very young pastors, we were associates in Yakima, Washington, And there was a principal of our school that really was not nice. He was not nice to the students. He was not nice to the teachers. He was horrible to the parents. And he would sit on our board and spew this negative, angry, mean spirit. And so I was, what, 25 years old. I didn't really know any better. And I asked God to remove him from our board. Is that my right? You know, just, Lord, take care of him. Either change his heart and make him kind or take him off the board. He broke his back, and he never came back. So Mark says, don't pray for me. (laughs) (laughs) And, And that's not to make me feel powerful. Because I didn't tell God to break his back or allow allow the devil to break his back. But what I did do is take the problem to the Lord and said, do something. And God often will if we just leave the how of it in his hands. So, according to Philip Yancey, in his book, Soul Survivor, there's a story about a black pastor by the name of John Perkins. Anybody ever heard of John Perkins? He hasn't really made history. He, had, he lived through the worst nightmare of the civil rights movement. Perkins started a church, then a Bible institute, a radio program, a health clinic, a co-op, a vocational training center, and a recreational center for youth. He also had a church that tutored after school and provided housing for the homeless. Okay, is this a good man? absolutely go-getter, let's take on the needs of the world. And he was succeeding with that. But he lived in Mendenhall, Michigan, and he started a voter registration campaign for the blacks in his church who lived around him. And he led an economic boycott to protest police brutality 
and then they came after him. He had crossed a line. He was accosted by over a dozen white policemen and beaten so severely that doctors had to remove two-thirds of his stomach, and it took him 18 months in the hospital to recover. Perkins said that that time was without a doubt my deepest crisis of faith. It was a time for me to decide if I really did believe what I professed, that only the love of Christ, not the power of violence, is there any hope for the world. I began to see how hate would destroy me. So I started praying for God to deal with my enemies. There you have it. And I ended up praying that God would change my heart. So you start praying for your enemies, and eventually God gets to you. He changes your attitude toward them. In the end, I have to agree with Dr. King that God wanted us to return good for evil. Love your enemy, Jesus said. And I determined to do it. It's a profound and mysterious truth. Jesus' concept of love overpowering hate. I may not see it in my lifetime, but I know it's true. Because on that bed, full of bruises and stitches, God made it true for me. He heard my angry prayers and turned them into prayers of intercession and love for the people who had hurt me. I couldn't give up. We were just getting underway in our ministry in Menden Hall. Many years later, Perkins found himself in Mississippi, where he spearheaded a movement for racial reconciliation. He often would go on a speaking tour with Thomas Terrence, who was one of those policemen who had beaten him up. This policeman had been a KKK operative, went to prison for murder, got converted to Jesus in prison, and now pastors a multiracial church in DC. So, Sometimes what we're asking God to do is to change our enemy, to change our situation, to fix it up, to make it just and right, because a lot is not just and right. And instead, God just cries with us. And then he begins to work this miracle that changes our own hearts. But you have to start with honesty. You have to start at the beginning of the process and tell God how it's making you feel. And it could be sad, and it could be mad. You just have to tell him. So, I'm going to skip a page or two because we're late. If you have to pray mad, just pray. If you have to pray sad, and there's that pile of soggy Kleenex, just pray. If you need God to make an injustice right, talk to him about it. Just pray. If you need to pray for mercy because you know you're the one who created the mess, just pray. If you pray for peace but your heart is full of fear, and you know, there's that verse about men's hearts failing for fear. I think that's where we're at. 
in the world's history right now. Everybody is afraid of something. Just pray, and the fear will be brought back down to the correct size. Your prayers don't have to be perfect, loving, or theologically correct. Isn't that good news? Just pray. Romans 8.27 tells us that the Holy Spirit takes those prayers and takes them to the throne, and while he has them, he fixes them on the way up to be the prayers that will be acceptable to God. We have help when we pray. The Holy Spirit will take those prayers and deliver them perfect to God's throne according to his will. So just pray. And remember, when life is hard, God is easier to talk to than anyone else. <laughs>